Well, Thursday, February the 21st, 1974, was a big day in my life. I'll never forget it. The night before, I squirmed. I was nervous and restless. I didn't sleep well. I got up early that morning. My dad stayed home from work. Together, he and I rode to the state patrol office where I took my test for a Georgia's driver's license. And I passed on the very first try, no less. I still had to go to school that morning, but instead of dropping me off, Dad drove straight home. I'll never forget him pulling into the driveway. He got out of the car, and he handed me the keys. He said, Sandy, it's all yours. And I'll never forget the feeling. It was so surreal. It was like stumbling out of a dream. The day you've imagined all your life suddenly becomes a reality. Hey, you ladies might not understand. For boys, it's different. When a young man takes over the car keys, it's a rite of passage. He's empowered. It didn't matter that the keys I'd received cranked a 64 Mercury Comet, not exactly a hot rod. The type of car wasn't the point. I had the keys. I'll never forget the thrill of taking those keys, cranking that car, backing out of the driveway, heading down the street. The euphoria lasted until I turned the corner and could no longer see my house or my dad. That's when it hit me. I was now in sole control of a real live two-and-a-half-ton automobile. No parent in the passenger seat. It was just me, all alone, all by myself. My sense of privilege lasted just a few seconds before it gave way to a heavy load of responsibility. You see, keys weigh more than you think. And this is how I feel about being a pastor. There are moments when I'm aware of the privilege I've been given. It's fun to do what I do, to engage a passage of Scripture, wrestle with its meaning, then to pray and study and read over those verses until the, its intention becomes clear in my heart, and then to couch in it, couch it in words and illustrations to help folks see how it applies to their lives. This is hard work, but sermon preparation has always been great fun. It's also fun to follow God and to lead a group of people. You start out with a vision from God. It's solely spiritual. Maybe it's a new method or a project or an emphasis or a mission. At first, it's just an idea on a napkin. But you believe. You trust God to bring it to pass. Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. My faith and then your faith begin to add structure and muscle and definition to that vision. A notion that once just lived in thin air suddenly blooms into reality. People get saved, blessed, and grow as a result. And you realize how privileged you are to be a part. It was a blast. Developing lifelong friendships, performing weddings and Enjoying special moments in, in families' lives, baptizing new believers, confronting folks in time of grief. These are just a few of the privileges of being a pastor. I think the greatest joy on earth is to watch God switch the light on in a human heart and bring a person into a deeper faith. That's when it's fun to be a pastor. But sometimes that fun lasts about as long as it took me to drive around the corner in that 64 Comet. 
All too often, the euphoria gives way to a deep sense of responsibility. Suddenly, you realize you're holding the keys. And it doesn't matter the size or style or luxuriousness of the car those keys crank. All of a sudden, you're moving. Cars in the other lane are flying by you. Collisions are possible. Then you take on a passenger or two. Now you're responsible for other people's lives and their welfare. And that euphoric feeling gets replaced by the realization that what you're doing is serious business. It's life and death. Driving is high stakes. And the same is true for being a pastor. Those keys can get really heavy. I've been a pastor now for 30 years. And this morning, I want to talk about it. I want to discuss with you what it's like to receive the keys to a church. And this is going to be an eye-opening experience for some of you. For when you think of church, you approach it from your own frame of reference. And rightly so. You walk in. You sing praises to God. You listen to the message. Hopefully, you drop an offering in the box. You jump back in the car, and then you grade the sermon on the drive home. That's okay. I know you do it. But here's what you don't do. You never put yourself in my shoes. The church is full of backseat drivers who've never actually sat behind the wheel. You know, as a, as a parent, have you ever thought, if my rowdy kids in the backseat knew how to drive a car, they'd behave themselves while I tried to drive? Well, perhaps that's my intention for you this morning. I want you to see the church from the pastor's point of view. I've given this church 30 years. I'm asking for you to indulge me now for the next 30 minutes. We're in the midst of a group of messages in 1 Timothy. We're calling our series Church Mechanics. We're popping the hood on the church. In numerous ways, we've been comparing the church to an automobile. And today's message is entitled, Taking the Keys. Just for this morning, I want you to take a moment to feel the weight of those keys. I'm sure the Apostle Peter, he understood the heaviness of the keys. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gave keys to Peter. In verse 19, the Lord said to his disciple, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Imagine the disciple who proved chicken before the rooster crowed. He's being given the keys to the kingdom. Peter was independent and brash and impulsive. He made boastful statements, then ended up eating crow. Oh, Peter, he hit rock bottom when he denied the Lord in front of a campfire girl. And yet Peter was a recipient of a love he didn't deserve. He was shown lavish grace. After his resurrection, Jesus forgave and he restored Peter. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter was made a leader in the early church. In fact, each time the Holy Spirit wanted to unlock the door of God's kingdom to a new group of people, guess who was there holding the keys? It was Peter. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria, in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius, when salvation came to the Jews and then the Samaritans and then the Gentiles, it was Peter handling the keys that unlocked the kingdom. 30 years ago, God handed me the keys to Calvary Chapel. Perhaps this is the place where you repented of your sin and first experienced the joy of knowing Jesus. 
Or maybe Calvary Chapel is the place where you were exposed to God's Word for the first time and learned to walk with God in a deeper way. Or perhaps it was here that you were filled and baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever your experience, Calvary Chapel was the key that unlocked your heart to God. What a privilege it was for Peter to play such an instrumental role in the building up of God's kingdom. And what a privilege it has been for me. But with that privilege comes some grave responsibilities. You remember what Peter wrote to his fellow pastors. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. A pastor shepherds. He feeds and he leads. He oversees and he cares for the welfare of the group. Believe it or not, this means that a pastor works more than one day a week. There's more to what he does than just chatting somebody up over a cup of coffee or dedicating a baby or scheduling a tea time with the elders. The first funeral I officiated was for a Vietnam vet. The war had messed him up. He came home jaded and cynical. After a failed marriage, he hated everything and everybody. He was 35, but he lived with his parents. I visited him once, tried to strike up a rapport. He refused to talk to me. One night, he came home after his parents had gone to sleep. He lit his mattress on fire. Then he sat down in the rocking chair, took a revolver, and blew his brains out. The blast from the gun woke up his dad. In a panic, his dad put out the fire only to walk into the living room to find his only son sitting there with a hole in his head. The next day, the dad called me and asked me to do their son's funeral. I couldn't believe it. It was the first funeral I'd ever done. It was like, welcome to the ministry. And I can remember thinking, Lord, can I start start with a warm-up funeral? Maybe a great-grandpa who died in his sleep and left behind a wonderful Christian legacy? Why do I have to start with a level five for experts only funeral? And yet this has been the story of my ministry. When God wants to teach me to swim, he always throws me in the deep end. 30 years later, this has happened so many times. Now when God says I need to learn a new stroke, I just walk to the end of the pool where it says 12 foot deep. I've never been able to get caught up in the euphoria of the job because of its relentless responsibilities. Let me read you a few verses on pastors. First, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, here's a verse. It starts out great. Don't buck the pastor. Cooperate. You don't want a pastor who hates coming to work. Make his job a joy. But here's why. He watches out for your soul. Hey, I'll stand before God one day and be accountable for you. I have a hard enough time watching out for my own soul. Now I'm saddled with the responsibility for a whole church. You know, you didn't know it, but you can make my life really hard one day. At the judgment seat of Christ, when it's Calvary Chapel's turn, I'll be there. And you'll walk up and God will say, okay, Sandy, what about this one? Hey, I'm not only responsible for the stupid stuff I've done and the stuff my kids have done 
I'm accountable for the knuckle-headed blunders that you've pulled. This is why Paul sends Timothy a mixed message. On the one hand, in chapter 3, verse 3, he tells Tim, elders should not be given to wine. Paul is thinking of our responsibilities, and rightly so. Pastors make decisions that have eternal consequences. We need to be clear-headed at all times. A glass of wine could cloud our thinking, so Paul makes wine off-limits to pastors. Yet later in the book, Paul is again considering Tim's responsibilities. He's got wackos in the church that are following false doctrine and getting sideways with silly speculation. Other folks are despising Timothy's youth. There's a squabble over how the widow should be treated. Groundless accusations are being hurled at the elders. And so Paul says to Tim in chapter 5 verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. It's as if Paul has concluded on second thought, a glass of wine every now and then might just be what you need to help you stomach this job and relieve the stress. Hey, just so you know, I'm stuck on chapter 3, verse 3. I don't drink alcoholic beverages. But for my stomach's sake, on most nights, I shut it down, pour some skim milk over a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios, and sit down and watch Sports Center. <laughs> Every pastor needs a way to unwind and maintain his sanity. For Timothy, it was a glass of wine. For me, it's Honey Nut Cheerios and Sports Center. The pastor I worry about is named James Chapman. Did you realize he unwinds by umpiring rec league softball games? How rough is your job when the diversion is to call balls and strikes for drunk redneck softball players? He relaxes by getting ugly names screamed at him. Being a pastor must be a really tough job. You know, here's another verse that applies to pastors. James 3 verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will receive the stricter judgment. <laughs> what a great verse to read, knowing that you as a pastor have got to teach the Bible twice a week, at least 40 or 50 times over the next year. I mean, rather than getting a break for knowing it and teaching it, God says, we better do it. The bar gets raised higher for the person who teaches. Let me give you another warm, fuzzy, feel-good verse for a pastor. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 15, Paul encourages Tim, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Timothy, be careful. Your words can send somebody to heaven or to hell. I'm sorry. I want to be able to tell you that everybody's job is hard. Nobody's got it any tougher than anybody else, but I can't. I mean, not even doctors deal with heaven and hell. They only navigate life and death. But a pastor, he opens his mouth and people draw conclusions about God and salvation and what's true and false and good and evil. It's high stakes. One of the scariest moments of my life occurred early one morning. It was in the wee hours of the morning, maybe 2, 3 o'clock a.m. The phone rang, and I answered. The woman on the other end of the line was facing a crisis. Her father had just died, and she had questions about the afterlife, about how to be saved. I spoke to her for maybe 30 minutes, 
And I was so tired that night. I got out of bed and I actually stood up for the conversation just so I could stay awake. I remember all this because Kathy told me about it the next day. She asked, who called last night? I said, what call? (laughs) I couldn't even remember that I'd had a conversation, let alone what I said or who it was. Thankfully, Kathy heard my end of the conversation and she put my mind to ease. At least what I said was biblical. But I don't even remember the phone call. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul reminds Timothy to meditate and study and take heed to yourself and what you teach, lest you send somebody to hell. I don't know if it always shows, but I work real hard at what I do. I want to be precise in what I believe and in how I communicate. You see, if the scope of your rifle is off just a fraction, the bullet might miss its target by 20 yards. And for the same reason, a pastor needs pinpoint accuracy. I remember when we added seats to our sanctuary, I got several bids from contractors. One guy gave me a ballpark price, and then he came back later with his actual bid. It was three times more expensive than his original quote. I told the fella, man, if I was that far off in my business, I'd send somebody to hell. A pastor has to be sound in his doctrine and exact enough in his living for it to back up what he says. Hey, Jesus is the only way to heaven, but life is full of booby traps and missteps that can send a person to hell. I'm just saying a pastor is a regular in pressure-packed situations. When a pastor teaches God's word or counsels a person at a crossroads, hey, think of Billy Wagner trying to close the game in the bottom of the night. There's pressure on the outcome. A lot hangs in the balance. And unlike Billy Wagner, your pastor isn't going to retire at the end of the season. I hope I stay on the roster, not for 30 years, but for 50, 60 years. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul is instructing the church to pay its pastor. And he quotes an obscure Old Testament passage. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. <laughs> Notice Paul calls the pastor an ox. And that's okay. I'll take it. An ox is nothing fancy. He's not a sleek stallion or a ferocious leopard or a swift cheetah or a strong grizzly bear or even a clever fox. He's just an ox. Call me Pastor Ox. But what is an ox? An ox is a beast of burden. He's strong and tough and rugged and durable and consistent. An ox doesn't mind the weight of a harness. He doesn't run from responsibility. Strap a plow to his back and he can keep a straight line. An ox can pull stuff and carry a load for other people. If you want to be quick, find a rabbit. If you want pretty, look for a flamingo. If you'd like somebody to tell you what you want to hear, buy a parrot. But if you want to plow a field and plant some seed and grow a crop and reap a harvest and then thresh that wheat, then find an ox and get behind him and let him eat what he grinds. And he'll keep the furrows straight. He'll do his job. And so will a good pastor. For the last 30 years, I've learned to be an ox. I'm not sleek or quick or pretty. 
I'm a plotter. <laughs> All I've done for 30 years is listen to God, try to do what He tells me, and do it again the next day. I don't check the weather forecast before I get up to go to work. If it rains or sleets or snow, it doesn't matter to me. I still go to work. Likewise, I don't base what I do or what I teach on the latest opinion polls. I'm not tailoring my messages to cultural trends. My goal is to speak the timeless truths of God. And as with an ox, I've learned that God can put more on me. And by His Spirit, I won't break. He can push me harder and longer than I thought I could be pushed. And by His grace, I'll still stand. <laughs> Just call me Pastor Ox. I have a book in my office. And its title serves as my motto. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I'm up to 30 years now and counting. Hey, let me admit, there are some days when, when I wonder what it would be like to have a regular job. Did you know the French Foreign Legion actually has a recruitment website? I've been there. Thought about joining until I found out I couldn't bring my wife. Actually, there's a guy at Bay Creek Park who, for me, has the dream job. He runs a snow cone stand. He pulls up his trailer, oh, about 5.30 or so in the afternoon. He rolls it out at 9.30, works only three hours. I'm sure he gets home by the end of the Braves game. He sleeps in, does lunch with his wife, probably piddles in his yard, and then he heads up to the park to sell snow cones to thirsty little kids. Snow cone man doesn't have assistant pastors to manage or power bills to pay or rebellious people to discipline or cults to guard against. All he thinks about is, is having enough raspberry flavoring and shaved ice. Think about it. Little kids don't commit adultery or get drunk, or get locked up, or shack up with their girlfriend, or go on a cruise instead of giving their ties. They just like snow cones, and they love snow cone, man. A pastor confronts sin and unbelief. He commands people to repent. Snow cone man makes everybody happy, then packs up and goes home. Snow cone man is kind of like the worship leader. Yep. He passes out the raspberry flavoring. He sings these sweet, happy little songs. Man, when Kevin was our worship leader, everybody loved Kevin. He wrote these cute songs and directed children's plays. Pastor Kevin makes your, ch your child a star. Pastor Sandy tells you you need to stop cheating on your income tax. Kevin was like the snow cone man. Everybody loved Pastor Kevin up there next to big, bad Pastor Sandy. I can't play the guitar, so I thought about turning in my resignation and buying out the snow cone man. Let's see. Fighting spouses, little kids. Critical church members, shaved ice. Pastor, snow cone man. Well, call me dumb as an ox, but I choose pastor. And I'll tell you why. I can do nothing else. God has called me to be a pastor. You see, this was true of Paul. He introduces himself, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Notice this. He was an apostle by the command of God. But Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. 
He, he wasn't thumbing through the career guide in the high school counselor's office reading about cool opportunities in apostleships. No, God commanded him to be an apostle. Paul makes a similar statement over in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul didn't sign up for the ministry. God called him and installed him. God put him into the ministry. He goes on, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or angry man. Paul was the least likely candidate to ever pastor. Before his conversion, he was an angry rabbi who hated all things Jesus. It wasn't like Paul was recruited by some corporate headhunter working to find good pastor material for the church. Oh no, Paul was the headhunter. He was hunting down and killing Christians. And yet God chose him and then called him. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul explains God chose him to set a precedent. You see, if God can save the chief of sinners, Paul's description, his description of himself, then all of us are candidates for God's grace. God can choose us to serve him as well. If he can serve the chief of sinners, there's nobody he can't use. I have no doubt God set a precedent when he called me to be a pastor. At first, I didn't want the job. I can't see. In the South, there's a church on every corner. I wanted to be a Christian in the workplace. Business was my major in college. My goal was to make lots of money and give a bunch of it to the church. I thought the last thing we needed was another pastor. And yet, in the end, my vote didn't count. God trumped me. He called me. God commanded me not only to start a church, but a certain type of church. My mission was to launch a Calvary Chapel where there were no Calvaries. If all I'd wanted to do was start another church, I would have been better off calling it Baptist. We would have had more name recognition. Folks wouldn't have accused us of being a cult. But God wanted to establish a ministry in the deep south that mirrored the first church in Acts that turned out to be a Calvary Chapel. And you know, my job isn't over. Today, our church is planning a Calvary Chapel in Barrow County. We're also encouraging Calvary Chapel pastors all across the deep south. When God called me, he set a precedent. He can use hip pastors from California to start Calvary Chapels, and he can trust the keys to good old southern boys as well. When my dad gave me those keys to that 1964 Mercury, it was already a decade old, and it had over 100,000 miles on the odometer, but it didn't matter to me. I learned long ago the purpose of an automobile is for transportation. Sometimes you can lose perspective with a car. You forget what's important. You get fixated on the style and the shine and the comfort and the accessories. Your car becomes sort of a status symbol. And you forget the ultimate usefulness of a car. The point of any car is to get its passengers to their destination. And this is the goal of any church, whether it's a fancy church or a youthful church or a wealthy church or a heavily attended church or an innovative church with all the options. It's still got to get you to your destination. And in the end, isn't that how every church will be judged? Our Calvary Chapel is probably not, probably not the type of church you'll take to the car show. You don't walk by us and gawk. There's nothing fancy or showing 
We don't have diamond tuck interior or wide tires or those spinners. The paint job is probably by Mako. We're like a Toyota 4x4 pickup with 300,000 miles. But boy, we get the job done. The newer models on the lot, they have more extras, far more accessories. But for 30 years now, we've been getting people to the right destination. And while you're with us, we keep you tuned up and filled up and running right. You know, in Haiti, the main mode of transportation is the tap-tap. It's a covered pickup truck that drives around Port-au-Prince stopping and starting, letting people on and off. You tap on the side of the truck in order to signal the driver that you need him to stop. A tap-tap is colorful and crowded. It's a cross between a carnival bus, a taxi, and a paddy wagon. All kinds of people are hanging all over the tap-tap. And I can think of no better picture for our church. We're a tap-tap. Sorry, Calvary Chapel isn't an Escalade. You're not going to impress your friends riding with us. We're not a Lexus. If you're looking for comfort, it won't be us. We're not even a Mustang. Sleek and hip are not our trademark. We're just a tap-tap. We're colorful. We're a grace bus. Anybody and everybody can jump on board and learn of God's Word and God's Spirit. I'm thankful for our regular riders who believe in who we are and what we do. They pay the bills and buy the gas and keep us running. But Calvary Chapel is a tap-tap. It's not about us, you see. It's not about who we are or how nice we look. It's never been about that. It's about getting our passengers to their God-appointed destinations. You don't measure the usefulness of a tap-tap by counting the people in the seats at any one time. You watch it as it travels along its route. People tap on at one point, they tap off at another. You get used to it. Did they miss their connection? Did they jump off too soon? Did they stay on long enough? That's not my issue. Jesus is Lord. I'm just the tap-tap driver. I got the keys, and it's my job to get my riders safely to their next stop. Of course, there are quite a few folks who've been with us for decades. <laughs> Some of you for a couple of decades, and I so appreciate your commitment. I call you the unexpected joy of my ministry. What I didn't anticipate about being a pastor was the benefit of long-term relationships, how my heart would get interwoven with your heart. Some of you I led to Jesus. I baptized you. I then officiated your wedding. I then dedicated your kids. Man, I'm a part of your family. What an incredible joy that is. Some folks tap on and off. For the time they're on board, we move them forward in their maturity. God uses us for a specific person at a specific purpose at a vital time. Other riders, though, are, are long-term. We're able to build something special. For a tap-tap driver, both type of riders are reasons to rejoice. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice this. Paul passes a copy of the keys to Timothy, who then passes them on to other men. This, too, is a pastor's job and joy. Passing on the keys. I can never do it all myself. I need to raise up faithful men and women. 
for the work of the ministry, equipped to do the work of loving and serving and teaching. And you know, if that's my goal, I've been successful because I thank God for the army of faithful volunteers he's built up at Calvary Chapel that help in the work he's called us to do. Though I'm passing on copies of the keys, I want you to know I still have the originals. 30 years ago, God handed me the keys, and by His grace, they haven't been lost or misplaced or stolen. I still got the keys. It's been my honor to keep Calvary Chapel moving. When we hit a bump, we let the Holy Spirit realign the front end, start to sputter, and we pray for a tune-up. These keys are a privilege and a responsibility I take very seriously. I don't know what the future holds, what the next 30 years might bring. I sure hope the Lord takes us home. But the day will come when I'll give those keys back to the one who gave them to me. And when I do, I want to make sure this car is still firing on all cylinders and is still headed in the right direction. Thanks for being on board. Let's keep the pedal to the metal. Amen.